If you have a Bible available, um, I ask you to turn to Paul's letter to the Philippians. And we find ourselves at the end of chapter 1 this morning in verses 27 through 30. Also take this time to mention that on the inside of our pews we have fellowship pads that we'd like you to pass down the, the aisles. It gives us a chance to, to know who you are and uh, especially if you're visiting to, to make your acquaintance. Philippians chapter 1 verses 27 through 30. Let's come now before God's holy and eternal word. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him, since you were going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. This is God's word. Let's go before him now in prayer, asking for his help. Heavenly Father, we come before you now and... We thank you for this day that we have uh, set aside to worship you and to to hear your word. And we we recognize this morning that though we are all here, we all come from a number of different places with a number of different things going on in our lives. Uh, There are those that come this morning who are longing to hear hear you speak, desperate to hear you speak into their lives where they are. There, there are those here this morning that are, are skeptical of your word and wondering if this good news can really be true, that Jesus dies for sinners. There are those that come here this morning with many doubts, those that come this morning who are confused by your providence in their lives, who, who are sad and troubled by their lot in this world. There are those that come this morning who feel as though they have never walked closer with you than they are right now. Father, for all of us and from all the different places we come this morning, we would ask now that you would be merciful to your people. That you would allow us to see the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. That you would remind us this morning that we are far, far more sinful than we could have ever imagined about ourselves. And yet because of what you have done for us in Jesus We are far more loved and secure and accepted than we could have ever dreamed. Father, we pray that you would allow us to see this this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.
Well, this morning we come to an interesting passage. Um, it's, a, it's one of those passages that are it's just packed full of stuff. Um, but it also indicates a shift in Paul's letter to the Philippians, if you've been with us over the course of the last few weeks. Um, because most of the focus so far has been on Paul and his situation as he finds himself in prison in Rome. But here Paul shifts his attention to his readers and he starts to speak directly to them. And for actually for these verses, I, um, I hijacked, uh, hijacked an outline of uh, some points from a guy named Alistair Begg, if you're familiar with him, a uh, preacher. But before we get there, I want to tell you about an article that I read a couple of years ago. And the title of that article was, I Do, Now What? The same title that we have for our sermon printed in the bulletin. And the article was about this couple, and their names were Meg and Gar, very manly name. But uh, they each kept a diary, a separate diary during their first year of marriage. And, and so the whole article was kind of spun off of entries in their, in their diaries. And in these diaries, they talked about all the things they did. They talked about what were the good things, what were the bad things. Um, they talked about how they felt about each other in that first year of marriage. And by far... The most interesting parts of that article were when they wrote about, um, you'll understand this if you're married, uh, when they wrote about their getting into arguments and fights and, you know, all the different things they they fought about. Uh, Several times in this girl, Meg, in her diary, uh, she would, you would come across these interesting phrases like, I wanted to choke him. I just wanted to kick him. Uh, all these violent phrases. Uh, it was just hilarious to read. Um, but, you know, back from the honeymoon, as soon as the honeymoon was over, they fought about who was going to write the thank you cards. And they had fights about, you know, uh, where they went out to eat and how they ordered food and, and all these different things. They had arguments about doing laundry and money and uh, running errands, all these different things they had these arguments about. And I thought the title was, you know, of course, especially fitting, you know, I do, now what? Here, here, here's this couple who finds themselves unprepared for the struggles of marriage. And I, I don't want you to hear me talking badly about marriage. Marriage is a beautiful, wonderful thing. But if you're married, you know that it's also just difficult. Um, that's part of it. But here's this couple. They dated. They grew to love each other. They got engaged. They walked the aisle and they said their I do's. And all of a sudden, here they are in their first year of marriage. And now they realize they're going to have to spend the rest of their lives together. And so the question is, now what? You know, now how do I get along with this person? Now how do I live with this person? What am I supposed to do now that I'm married? Well, where am I going with all this? Well, I want to suggest that a similar question faces us when we follow Jesus. You see, the gospel is this this glorious announcement of good news, right? Jesus Christ crucified in the place of sinners. We're received not because of anything that we have done, but all because of what Christ has done in our place. It's glorious. It's joyous. It's freeing. But now what? I mean, how does the gospel begin to affect us in the mundane, day-to-day stuff of life? I mean, what are we to find ourselves doing? Where, where are we to find ourselves as people? And, and I think these verses really address 
the now what of the Christian life, the now what of living the gospel as Paul turns from his matters to focus on the needs of the Philippians. And so I want us to see uh, these four things this morning. I want to see that the now what involves a statement that we make, a stand that we take, a sign that we give, and a struggle that we are called to embrace. So first we need to talk about our statement. And this statement, I'm going to say to you, is made by the way we live our lives. In verse 27, Paul writes this. He says, whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. I mean, he's talking about the day-to-day application here. You know, whatever happens, whatever's going on in your life, and all of us have to come to grips with the fact that we are always making a statement about the gospel in the way we live in the day-to-day. In the day-to-day stuff of life, our conduct, Paul is saying, is to match the beauty of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the appropriate response to the gospel, to the good news, is really to reflect that gospel in our lives. And so I think we have to ask the question, is there a disconnect between the gospel and your conduct or your life? See, God is calling us to harmony in what we believe and the way we live. There really is here no limit to the amount of applications that that we could make because you understand that Jesus reigns over all of your life. And the redemption that God has secured for his people is total. And that means that your private life as well as your public life is in view. That means that the way you live in the workplace is in view. That means that it has to do with how you spend your free time. It deals with the way that you live out the gospel with your friends and your neighbors on your street. I mean, the applications really are quite numerous here. But I want to focus our attention where I think things get a little bit more personal for us. Let me just start by saying this. The person you are, the person you are at home is the person you are. See, sometimes it is tempting for us to, to believe the press about ourselves out there. You know, the people at my work, they love me. My friends all like me. They all think I'm great. You know, everybody, everybody looks at me and they think I do an awful lot every week. You know, everybody's impressed at work in my job. But, okay, fair enough. But my question is, or I guess what I'm saying to you is this. They don't know you. They don't know you like your family knows you. You see, would your wife, would your husband, would your kids, or would your parents say about you, you live a life that is in harmony with the gospel of Jesus? Ask your family that this afternoon and see what kind of response you get. You see, this is where the rubber starts to meet the road. I mean, do they see honesty? Do they see mercy? Do they see a desire for justice and goals that are compatible with a kingdom that is eternal? You know, another place I think this gets personal is actually in the church. I mean, the church, interestingly enough, it's a place where we confess that we are desperately needy 
that we are broken beyond our own repair. And we are in desperate need of Jesus to rescue us from our sins. I mean, and Paul is speaking, you understand, to the church in Philippi. And he's saying, conduct yourself to the church in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So is the church a place where you hide? I mean, a a place where you come and you put on a false self. And you know, that's not really who I am. And you really hide all your flaws and you pretend just to be such decent people on Sunday mornings. Because I think we all understand that the church often becomes that. Or is the church a place of transparency? I mean, a place where the broken can come and find a fellowship of people, of sinners dependent on Jesus and on Him alone. Because you see, I think we often talk about the gospel. We give lip service to it. And we say that we believe that it is for anyone who believes, and it doesn't matter who you are or where you've been or what you have done. But then often, very subtly, we live lives that are out of sync and jarring with the gospel. Lives that really do say, you need to get cleaned up. You need to be not so screwed up before you can really join us and be a part of our fellowship. Are we living consistently with the gospel? I'm sure most of you have been to talent shows before and, you know, people get up on the stage and they, they showcase their whatever they think is their particular talent, right? And uh, sometimes those talent shows can just, if you've been to them, they can just be, they have some painfully awkward moments in them. Um, and, you know, I'm talking about the guy or the girl that gets up on stage and they give this miniature speech on how much this particular song means to them and you, you're feeling the sincerity and they close their eyes and then they open their mouth and then all of a sudden you find yourself shifting in your seat, looking, trying to make eye contact with other people. Does everybody else, is everybody else hearing the same thing? Is, this is terrible. Um, and I mean, here, here's this person that's brave enough to get on stage. They're sincere in all these different things. But you find yourself thinking, I, I've hardly ever heard something as unattractive as this right now. Because you're thinking, the singing doesn't match the beauty of the music. It's jarring, and it's unsettling, and it's uncomforting. Listen, there is nothing, there is nothing as unattractive as someone who claims to believe the gospel, but lives completely off-key and out of tune with that music. See, if we believe that Jesus is the friend of sinners then that means we need to be friends with people who are really, really messed up. People like us. And if we believe that forgiveness in the gospel is free, then that has to begin to put an end to our bitterness and our criticism. And if we claim to be captivated by the holiness and majesty of our God, then we need to see 
that we are pursuing righteousness and holiness in every area of life. You see, the beauty of the gospel, Paul is saying, is to be seeping into every part of your life. To leave nothing untouched. Paul is calling the church to reflect the beauty of Jesus, to live in harmony with the truths of the gospel. Well, second, we're told in this passage that we're also to take a stand. It's not only that we're to be making a statement, but we're also to be standing firm, Paul says. In verse 28, Paul says that there are, there are people opposing the Philippians. And you see, the question isn't, will you be opposed if you believe the gospel? The Bible answers that very clearly. If you believe in Jesus Christ, if you rest in him alone for salvation, you're going to be rejected. You're going to be opposed if you live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel. Jesus says in John 15, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. That is why the world hates you, he explains. And he goes on to say, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. That is a promise. And we're going to come back to the suffering in another point. But for now, I need you to see something. The question isn't, will you be opposed? Or will you be hated if you believe the gospel? The question here is, how will you respond when you are hated? And what will you do when you are opposed? Paul says in verse 27 that if we conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, we will stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel without being frightened. So what is it that we're to be standing for? He says that we are to be standing firm and contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. Let me ask, what is what is it that the church stands for? I mean, what would you say that you stand for in your life? I mean, I, I think you ask most people this question. And they say, well, we're pro this and we're anti this and we're pro that and we like this particular political party and that's who we are. And that's what we stand for. But Paul says all of those different things that you are for and against, they are not the core issue. The core issue, Paul says, is the faith of the gospel. When opposition comes, he is saying, this is where you have to find yourself standing. Why? Because it is the gospel that is central. It is the gospel that divides and separates. Listen to me. The future of humanity does not rest on being pro this or pro that or in the right political party. The future of humanity is divided over the person and work of Jesus. I do not want you to misunderstand me. I'm not saying that all these things are unimportant out there. But they are merely an extension of the core issue. The gospel. I mean, again, Paul is commending the church. And for centuries and centuries, the church has been faced with this temptation to replace the gospel with a cause. To replace the gospel with a movement or an agenda. But God would tell you this morning that it is the apparent foolishness of a crucified Jewish carpenter that is the wisdom of God for salvation. That is the issue. You know, some of you remember uh, the Tiananmen Square in China in 1989. If you were too young, maybe seen it in a history book. I don't know. But, you know, there, there you are, students in China. They, you know, they're standing up against their government there. 
And they found themselves an issue that they were not going to budge on, and that issue is freedom. And the most famous picture you remember of that revolution there is this student standing in the public square holding a briefcase, and in front of him are like four or five of these huge military uh, tanks. And he's standing there by himself holding them off. That picture was plastered all over the news, all over the papers. It, it It was everywhere. And it was, it represented this. Here is a core issue. They would not budge when it came to this issue of freedom. And I'm saying the picture of God's people, Paul is telling us, is to be an unwillingness to budge on the central issue of the gospel. Jesus crucified for sinners. And I'm telling you, if we miss this, we miss everything. And if we find ourselves sidetracked from the gospel, standing firm on every other issue, as good and as important as it might be, we have blown it. The gospel is the core issue. We need to move on. A third thing in this passage, our statement and our stand, Paul is saying, is a sign that points two ways. It's a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. He says that in the middle of verse 28. By living the gospel and standing firm for the faith of the gospel, in the midst of being opposed, we give a sign that points in two directions. The sign says to those who oppose us and those who would oppose Jesus that they will be destroyed. And the sign says to us that we will be saved by God. Not necessarily... I guess politically correct to talk about this, but this is this is how Paul talks all over the place. This is what he says in 2 Corinthians. To the one, we are the smell of death, and to the other, the fragrance of life. You see, it's it's not that you it's not that if you make a statement and take a stand on the gospel, it's not that you might become the smell of death. In the fragrance of life. Paul is saying, you will be these things at the same time. You will be a sign pointing in two different directions. The smell of death and the fragrance of life. You know, these people Paul is writing to, they would have been quite familiar with Caesar and the Roman Colosseum. Gladiators fighting to death in the arena. And you know, from maybe from movies or whatever, but, uh, you know, There are these gladiators fighting in the Colosseum, and eventually one gladiator would have beaten the other. He would have placed his foot on his chest, and he would have stuck his sword into the throat of his competitor in the arena. He would have looked up to Caesar, and he would have looked for a sign. From what I read, a thumb pointed down actually meant, "Let, let the defeated person live. And a thumb pointed up meant take his life. You know, a thumb pointed up was was just this. It was a a sign that pointed in two directions. To the one, it meant victory. And to the other, it meant destruction. Paul is saying that you give a sign that points two ways when you live and stand on the gospel. And what that sign says ultimately is that salvation is. Is from God and God alone. See, if you are not in Jesus, united to Him by faith, 
It is a sign that destruction is coming. That wrath will be unleashed from heaven. But if you are in Jesus, united to him by faith, it says this to you. Though you deserve hell, you will get life in return because of what Jesus has done in your place. I encourage you to read Psalm thirty, Psalm 73 sometime. It really is the perfect illustration of what's going on in this passage. You know, the writer of that psalm, if you're familiar with it, looked at the wicked and he envied the wicked. I mean, he looked at the wicked and here they are standing against God. And yet they're, they seem to be prospering everywhere. Everything seems to be going well with them. With them. And he's saying, he's saying in that psalm, as for me, my foot had almost slipped. I was tempted when I saw that. And sometimes you look at your life and you say this. You know, what's the point? You live the gospel, you stand on the gospel, and you wind up suffering. While the wicked go on more and more and seem to prosper. While you experience rejection. You know, by the end of that psalm, when you read it, the writer comes to see things the way they really are. And what he sees at the end of that psalm, when he sees things the way they really are, is he sees a sign. A sign that is pointed in two ways. He understands that it isn't his foot that is on slippery ground. Because God is his salvation. God is his salvation and rescue, but he also sees that it is the wicked that are indeed standing on slippery ground. They may seem to prosper in this life, but they will be destroyed, that writer says. In the end, the sign that we give is simply this. Salvation comes from God through Jesus. Our statement and our stand on the gospel, Paul is saying, give us the assurance that we have an everlasting hope in the gospel. And it says to those who oppose Jesus that God himself will oppose them who stand against him. Well, finally, in verses 29 and 30, we see our struggle. Over the past couple of weeks, uh, as we've gone through the first chapter of Philippians, we've seen that Paul has had a lot to say about the suffering about suffering for the gospel, and we're about to go to another section. But before we leave chapter 1 and all it has to say about suffering, Paul says something here that I think is huge. And what he says here is that suffering for Jesus isn't a curse, but a blessing. In fact, what he's really saying with this language is he's saying, suffering for Jesus isn't a burden to you, it is a gift given to you. Look at verse 29. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. He says, not only have you been given the gift of faith, but you have given the gift, you've been given the gift of suffering for Jesus. If I can be so bold this morning, I, I want to encourage you this morning to boldly suffer for Jesus. You see, what we need desperately to understand is that God's kingdom is completely upside down and backwards in our world. In God's kingdom, the way up is the way down, and everything is turned on its head. I mean, that's why Paul says Jesus gives you the gift of suffering for him. The theologian John Stott, he, he writes these two sentences in his book, uh, The Cross of Christ. He says this, The place of suffering in service and of passion in mission 
is hardly ever taught today. But the greatest single secret of evangelism or missionary effectiveness is the willingness to suffer and die. You see, the value system of God's kingdom is completely upside down in comparison to the value system of the world. The invitation to living the Christian life, the now what of the Christian life, it is an invitation to death. I mean, just look at verse 30. Paul is saying, you saw the struggle in my life and you see it in your life too. He's saying, this is not uncommon. This is the common life of those who follow Jesus. They suffer for him. What what does that mean to us practically? I think it means that we have to that we have to begin giving up comfort in favor of sacrifice. That in some ways, we have to give up safety in favor of risk. And I think it means quite plainly that we have to love our neighbors, our co-workers, and our friends in such a way that it will mean the loss of our reputation before them. It means that we involve ourselves in the lives of those we would rather avoid. Because we know it is going to cost us and involve death. Death to some of our own goals. It's going to cost us time. It's going to cost us energy. It's going to cost us resources. It's going to cost us money. That's the kind of death that is in view for us. That we would suffer for Jesus. That we would be rejected for him. You know, Paul says this kind of suffering for Jesus is a a gift. Not a burden, but a gift. I mean, how could that be? I mean that quite seriously. How could that be? That it could be considered a gift to suffer. I mean, if you're like me, you want to say, you know, Paul, you know, slow down, fella. Um, Getting ahead of yourself. Surely you're just trying to make some kind of point here. Not really our rejection, our suffering, our pain, or our death. I mean, it's such a strange place to end a sermon. You know, go die. Yay. Um, But the Bible is telling you and me, from beginning to end, that God goes against the grain of this world. I mean, how do you begin to get free to die? How, How do you get excited about this struggle? Facing rejection. I want you to please think about the cross of Jesus. I mean, it was a terrible, terrible place of execution. I mean, it was a place of torment, a place of suffering, a place of mockery, a place of rejection, and most certainly a place of death. And you have to consider this. That God uses the foolishness of a Roman cross. Suffering, weakness, rejection, and death to rescue the world. The struggle God calls us to, the death he invites us to, God has proven this to you. He is a God who works life through death. You see, Paul is calling the community of believers To embrace this struggle. And even as John Stott writes, this is our greatest secret of evangelism and ministry in this world. 
that we would suffer and die for others. For the church to be salt and light, to show forth the beauty of the gospel, this upside-down kingdom, we have to embrace this struggle. And we can find freedom only in this, that the eternal Son of God did not find itself did not find it beneath himself to be born in a manger, to live a life of suffering, and in the end to be rejected and crucified on an ugly Roman cross, to suffer the ultimate rejection, to endure the ultimate death, so that you might have life. I know it probably feels like we've been all over the map this morning, and in some ways we have. But just to end where we started, this Paul is saying is the now what of the gospel of grace. The now what of living the Christian life. There is a statement that we are to make with our lives. A stand that we are to take on the gospel, a sign that we are to give, and a struggle that we are to embrace in this life. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we confess to you that our lives are often lived out of tune and off key from the gospel, that we are often willing to stand on any and every issue but the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We confess that we don't want to be a sign of destruction in life at the same time. We want to be giving a sign of life all the time. And yet we ask that you would allow us to embrace that as well. We, we confess that we often flee difficulty. We often flee the very people you have called us to love because... We would rather enjoy our lives and our comfort than to lay them down in sacrifice. We pray that you would allow us to see the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus and that he did lay his life down for us. And we ask that in understanding that you would set us free, free from the worries and concerns of a life that may be lived in rejection and hurt and pain. Set us free that we might be your people who through our death minister life to those who are lost. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.